Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Justin Logan. I'm the Director of Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Uh, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here to our forum this afternoon on a really uncommonly wonderful uh, sunny August afternoon in Washington. Um, to our forum on proposals for using the U.S. military at the border to counter fentanyl. Um, you're going to hear a lot of reasons this afternoon why proposals for using the U.S. military uh, in and around Mexico to counter fentanyl is a bad idea, but I think it's important to state at the outset that there is a real underlying crisis happening in the United States vis-a-vis -vis fentanyl. Um, overdose deaths or precise data on overdose deaths are hard to come by. Um, but as near as we can tell, somewhere on the order of between 60 and 80,000 Americans per year, last year in 2022 anyway, um, are dying of fentanyl-related overdoses. Uh, provisional data from the CDC, for example, suggested there were more than 70,000 fentanyl overdose deaths in the country last year. Um, and so there is, I think, a real underlying crisis happening in the United States vis-a-vis -vis fentanyl, and that helps to explain why politicians have begun to latch on to the problem. In a June uh, NBC News poll, uh, illustrated that the public is actually quite anxious about this problem. Respondents were asked whether a presidential candidate who supported, quote, deploying the U.S. military to the Mexican border to stop illegal drugs from entering the country would make uh, someone more or less likely to vote for that candidate. Speaking of the public generally, it made people, it made 55% of people more likely to vote for such a candidate and only 29% of people less likely to vote for such a candidate. Speaking about Republicans in particular, 86% of people were more likely to vote for a candidate who favored deploying the U.S. military to the border to counter drugs, and only 6% of Republicans were more likely to oppose such a candidate. So I think you have a real underlying crisis happening in the United States, um, and you have politicians sort of groping around uh, at solutions. But just because something is marketed as a real solution to a real problem does not necessarily mean that it is a real solution to a real problem. So I think that's probably the right way to set up uh, the discussion that we're about to hear this afternoon. Um, and I'm very pleased to have what I think is a, a, a panel of diverse experts that get at this problem um, from different angles. So uncommonly, I think they will flow from uh, your left to your right. Brian Finucan is a senior advisor for the U.S. program at the International Crisis Group and a non-resident senior fellow at the Rice Center on Law and Security at NYU Law School. He previously served as attorney advisor at the U.S. State Department's Office of the Legal Advisor, and his work on U.S. foreign policy has appeared in Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, Just Security, and other outlets. He holds a DPhil from Oxford and a JD from Yale, and he's going to comment on some of the legal aspects of the proposals, particularly in Congress, um, for using the military vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the cartels. Guadalupe Correa Cabrera is professor in the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, where her research interests include border studies, drug trafficking, organized crime, and U.S.-Mexico relations, obviously germane to our discussion this afternoon. She's the author of Los Zetas Incorporated, Criminal Corporation, Energy, and Civil War in Mexico. She's currently working on a book project about human trafficking and transnational crime networks. 
She earned a BA in economics from the Universidad Iberoamericana in Mexico City and her MA, MPhil, and PhD in political science from the New School for Social Research. And finally, we'll hear from Jeff Singer, my colleague here at Cato, where he's a senior fellow in health policy studies. He's also the founder and president emeritus of Valley Surgical Clinics in Phoenix, Arizona. He is a physician by trade. He's practiced general surgery for more than 40 years. In March, Jeff testified before the House Subcommittee on Crime and Federal Government Surveillance about drug prohibition and the role that prohibition has played in the fentanyl crisis. He earned a BA from Brooklyn College and his MD from New York Medical College. So I think it's probably best to start off um, by asking Brian Finucan to talk a little bit, you know, we've heard from uh, particularly Republican presidential candidates that we're going to be very tough, we're going to use the military against the cartels, but not a tremendous amount of detail, I think, in those proposals. But we have, by my count, at least three pieces of legislation wending their way through Capitol Hill that involve, or, or at least uh, adjacent to, use of the military vis-a-vis -vis, uh, cartels, fentanyl, Mexico. Can you talk a little bit about what, if any, powers those would grant the government for using the military and what you think the implications of these legislation would, would, would be likely to have? Uh, thanks, Justin, for having me here, and thanks to Cato. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and let me just preface my remarks by noting that because the legal guardrails on the unilateral use of force by the U.S. president are weak, um, it is not necessary that Congress enact any additional legislation for the president in practical terms to be able to wield the military against um, cartels in Mexico. Um, so that's something to just bear in mind. Um, but you know, so reflecting both the scale of the fentanyl crisis and also its political um, salience, you know, by my count, there's 145 pieces of legislation that have been introduced in this Congress that refer to fentanyl. And they cover a broad range of topics from strengthening criminal penalties to increased border um, control to harm reduction. I'm going to focus on some of the more bellicose measures that have been introduced that frame the war on drugs as an actual war and propose either um, use of military force or sort of militarized approaches um, to uh, countering fentanyl. Um, the first and most extreme of these is the um, AOMF cartel introduced by Dan Crenshaw, Representative Waltz from Florida. Um, this is a real deal war authorization that's cut and pasted from the 2001 authorization for use of military force. That's the authority for the U.S. war on terror. Um, this measure reproduces some of the, many of the pathologies of, of that war on terror authorization. It would give the president necessary, the authority to use necessary and appropriate force against a list of named um, drug trafficking organizations in Mexico, but also the unilateral authority to add additional groups um, against whom the president could use force. And because this um, authorization is so broad, necessary, and appropriate, the president would have the authority to launch um, an indeterminate number of new wars against um, organizations in Mexico, and potentially even the Mexican state itself. Um, there's also in the House, uh, recently been passed out of the House Foreign Affairs Committee by voice vote, the Project Precursor Act which would direct the Secretary of State to add fentanyl as a chemical weapon under the Chemical Weapons Convention. In the Senate, Lindsey Graham has introduced a measure um, that would designate um, drug trafficking organizations as foreign terrorist organizations. Um, there have also been measures introduced in the House that would direct the Secretary of Homeland Security 
to um, designate fentanyl as a weapon of mass destruction. Um, earlier this year, President Biden received a letter from um, 18 states attorneys generals making a similar request that fentanyl be designated as a weapon of mass destruction. Now, the prospects for any of these measures actually becoming a law being enacted uh, is pretty dim at this point. Um, it's not even clear they passed both houses of Congress and the administration has shown no interest in signing these into law. But the danger in, in these framings, the danger in measures that um, cast the war on drugs as an actual war and cast use of military force as an appropriate policy tool is like the rhetoric we hear on the Cam train trails about using force against cartels, you know, doing drone strikes, blockades, or shooting suspected drug traffickers. They normalize the idea that the use of military force is an appropriate policy response to this crisis. And they make it more likely that a future president will actually use that authority. You know, again, the president doesn't need any additional authority given the weak guardrails he has, but they normalize the notion that this is an appropriate policy response for a future occupant of the, of the White House um, to rely upon. Brian, let me, and I, I'm gonna do my best to, to keep this from becoming the Representative Crenshaw show this afternoon, but there's a lot that, that Representative Crenshaw has done vis-a-vis um, -vis this, this policy. Um, he has done, you know, again, an authorization for the use of military force that, as you point out, is, has, has very clear parallels to the 2001 um, authorization of the use of military force. And I want to read you a quote. Um, he has done this sort of back and forth, what I would call kind of like hiding the ball on what the legislation would do. Um, he sort of is aghast and says, no one is talking about an invasion or a war with Mexico. Um, rather, the bill provides, as he puts it, quote, the minimum authority needed to operate with the Mexican military, and this is what I want to ask you about um, your, your sort of analysis of, as we've done with other allies battling internal insurgencies. So there seems to be this underlying conceit behind the way we've framed this problem, is that whether you want to frame it as Mexico is engaged in a counterinsurgency war or a low-grade civil war. And it's what's vexing us is that they don't want our help or they don't want help in the right way or they don't want enough help. Um, do you, what are we to make of this uh, uh, analytical? First of all, do you buy that, um, the, 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 that sort of sub rosa analysis is underpinning what's going on here? And if so, what are we to make of it? I think it's disingenuous. Uh, you know, you don't need an AUMF. You don't need a statute drafted in this fashion to provide the authorities that he's referring to there. Now, it depends on what exactly he has in mind, and he's fairly vague there. But in terms of what you want to do, share intelligence with the Mexican state to combat fentanyl trafficking. The president would not need additional authorities to, to engage in intel sharing, which I'm sure is um, taking place right now. So I think this, this attempt to walk back the clear implications of his own legislation you know, to distance himself from the, the clear text of the statute is disingenuous. And, and frankly, it reminds me of some of the measures, the steps and language um, from members of Congress who voted for the Iraq War Authorization, who, after it was used to, to invade Iraq, tried to distance themselves from their votes for the, the authorization, said, well, we didn't really intend it to be used to go to war, despite the fact that it provided that authority. Um, and so I think any time you see members of Congress introduce a war authorization, people should take it seriously. Yeah. 
Guadalupe, I wanted to ask you, because we got a little bit of more specificity about um, Representative Crenshaw's bill. Um, he had a post, I don't know where he was speaking, um, on Instagram recently, um, where he talked about having gone to high school in Colombia and um, visited Colombia recently and talked about how much Colombia is a different place than it was when he was there in high school. And according to Representative Crenshaw, quote, Colombia is the model. Um, and he says that um, the, the reason Colombia changed over 20 years, quote, was because of what American partnership meant for them. Our American military working hand in hand with them, the Colombians, our police, our law enforcement, all of it, very, very close relationships. So we've heard a lot about insurgencies, battling insurgencies, and I was sort of aghast at this because the American track record with counterinsurgency over the past 20 or so years is not a really one that people should want to replicate, particularly on our border. Um, so it was, it was in one sense a relief that we didn't want to replay uh, the Iraq and Afghanistan experience in northern Mexico, but at the same time vexing that the Colombia experience is what we're supposed to be replicating in Mexico. You've done work on trafficking, you're conversant in Plan Colombia, the 1990s, et cetera. Is Colombia a good analog for what we should be trying to achieve vis-a-vis -vis the cartels? What do you make of this analogy? It's a very bad analogy. And first of all, the, the name of the bill, the war on cartels, and cartel as a, as, as, as a concept, is a wrong concept to use. I understand that this concept is used in the media. Everybody uses that to refer to criminal groups in Mexico and in Colombia, too. I mean, the idea of the cartels in the Colombian, um, uh, I mean, the Colombian conflict. Um, but first of all, we're not talking about organizations. We were not talking about organizations in Colombia that come together, that uh, sit together to form um, um, an oligopoly and then decide the amount of drugs that they are going to produce and transport in order to operate as a monopoly. So first of all, the concept is wrong. And what about Colombia? I don't understand if Representative Crenshaw um, remember, it's, it's surprising that he lived there, but he does not remember how much destruction, this partnership that was a learning process uh, cost for Colombian citizens. And not only that, what are we fighting? It's a war against drugs, it's a war against, it's a war on fentanyl, it's a war that's going to leave this country free or, of drugs or is gonna diminish the levels of drug consumption. Well, what happened in Colombia is a failed war. Why? Because the objective was to reduce the levels of consumption of cocaine. If, if that is what, what we want to, I mean, what, what is the, the final aim of, of this collaboration, right? Anti-narcotics cooperation between the United States and the different countries of Latin America has been a failed war. But more drugs coming to the United States than any other time in history. The, the opioid epidemic, now the fentanyl crisis, after $1 trillion being spent on the war on drugs, Colombia is an example of the destruction, that militarization of um, the fight or the militarization of anti-narcotics policies. Uh, what has happened in Mexico with a Merida initiative? When 
And when Mexico started to militarize under the, under the umbrella of the Merida Initiative with you know, the agreement of the United States with the collaboration, it's exactly the time when homicides started to increase exponentially. And today, after these years, after 2007, from 2007 till today, we had more than 350,000 homicides. Some of them, I mean, directly related to the militarization of the security strategy that today continue and continues, even though the current president of Mexico does not talk about a war on drugs, he has militarized uh, completely public security at the federal level. I want to bring this up because um, we have a slide here. We started talking about Colombia because we were talking about cocaine, and we started talking about Mexico because we were talking about fentanyl. Um, this is a graph from, that was released by, oddly, the Institute for Defense Analysis through um, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, which is housed in the White House. Um, and these are the prices at different levels of quantity of a pure gram of cocaine. So you can see the Reagan drug war years are on the left-hand side, and obviously the years of the Colombian, the Plan Colombia are obviously there in the 1990s. But as you can see here, right, if we're interested in Colombia because of cocaine or if we're interested in Mexico because of fentanyl, what you would want ideally is to reduce the amount of cocaine or to reduce the amount of fentanyl coming into the United States, which as my economics 101 professor is reminding me over my shoulder right now, should have the effect of driving the price up. But in fact, what happened, as we see here, is that the price of cocaine went down dramatically. And then during the, the hot and heavy years of Plan Colombia, the prices were relatively flat with a few uh, ephemeral spikes. So if the reason that we're interested in the cartels now is because of fentanyl, the example of the Colombia experience does not give us a lot of reason to be hopeful that vis-a-vis -vis fentanyl, um, there's a lot of reason to be optimistic about um, mimicking the Colombia experience um, in Mexico. So thank you for, for bringing this slide up. I wanted also to ask you a little bit about um, the politics of this issue inside Mexico, um, because it is, to my mind, as an elementary uh, political science conversant person, um, it's, it's a little bit of a hot issue. People get uh, 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 fairly agitated about it. The Mexican president didn't like the idea of an authorization for the use of military force in the US <coughs> Congress. This was the least surprising thing to happen in my recent memory. Um, but there's a lot of consternation that this would be a hot topic inside of Mexico. Can you talk a little bit about both at the elite level and at the mass level how this issue plays and is likely to play or would be likely to play in Mexican politics? Because it, at my superficial understanding of Mexican politics, I can't think of a political, politically relevant force that would say, we think this is a swell idea. Um, but maybe you can tell us differently that there is uh, 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 such a force. Uh, Mexico today is very divided along party lines, as it is in the United States. But beyond that, that's the opposition might be some, somewhat um, happy with that with that uh, idea. But not let's 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 let's, let's try to discuss this better. Absolutely, for any Mexican citizen, just the idea of 
uh, military involvement, uh, direct military involvement in Mexico is, is pretty traumatic because of the traumatic experience of direct military involvement in Latin America. But not only that, it is, it is I mean, there's a sense, of course, of sovereignty, but what has happened, the experience, and also the brutality that can that this can create because of the brutality that has been created within Mexico because of the involvement of the military. There is an important segment of Mexican population that that support military Mexican military on the ground, but 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 there's a lot of criticism. How many people have disappeared, have died because of the confrontations between the cartels and the Mexican military? We cannot understand what would that mean to Mexico if the US military is involved, but the concern also is about intervention. It's about the United States intervening in our country and causing massive debts. And another thing that's very important to consider, what is a Mexican cartel again. Not all these so-called cartels are dedicated to the drug trade. The United States does not necessarily has to go, uh, I mean, after all criminal groups that sometimes started connected to the drug trade, but maybe they don't dedicate themselves to traffic drugs. Some of them specialize in different criminal activities, extortion, kidnapping, extracting rents from Mexicans. So what are you going to do? The concern is, if you're going to bomb, if you're, what are you going to go after? Are you going to go after any criminal group that operates in the country? Are you going to bomb uh, communities, complete communities of people where you know these activities are connected to the community itself? It's going to be a mass, uh, I mean, mass destruction for because of the involvement of uh, uh, an army that does not understand the dynamics of what is happening or taking place in this country. Definitely, um, some parts of the opposition were uh, criticizing the lack of results with regards to these criminal groups. Right. But it's not all these groups are connected to drug trafficking or fentanyl. That's, a, that's something that we need to understand. Some of these groups have also transformed themselves because of the war on drugs, the Mexican war on drugs themselves, or the military strategy. And they have divided themselves, and they have become complex adaptive systems. They adapt. and they they specialize in different criminal activities. So it's not a war on cartels, it's a war on, on, on the Mexican people. Yeah. And this is the way Mexicans perceive this. So it's a real ambivalence, an ambivalence in a sense that wherever you look, there's a bad option, there's a bad, you know, it can always get worse. Jeff, I wanted to get back to fentanyl because I think as the discussion in, in Congress and elsewhere has sort of drifted from the supposed animating problem, which is a bunch of people overdosing and dying on fentanyl in the United States, we've gone to Mexican cartels. I want to bring it back to fentanyl. Um, and as I said in the opening, you know, 70 or so thousand people overdosing or dying in fentanyl-related overdoses, pretty big problem. And you know, we should all be open to plausible solutions or, or partial solutions to that problem. Why is why are seventy thousand people a year killing over dead from fentanyl? Is there something unique about fentanyl? Is there something unique about the zeitgeist in America in twenty twenty three? Is it all drug prohibition and the 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 things that we know about how drug prohibition works? Is it a combination of all of those things? What's why is this happening? Yeah, it's important not to look at this in, in a vacuum. First of all, fentanyl is. Uh, a pharma legal pharmaceutical drug that's been around over 50 years, and if anybody's had any sort of surgery and anesthesia, there's a good chance they were given intravenous fentanyl, 
they've received it in recovery room to control their pain, and if they were, if they're chronic pain patients, they likely were given fentanyl in a skin patch that slowly gets absorbed over a few days. So it's a legal drug, just like methamphetamine is a legal drug, but it can be easily synthesized by uh, amateur chemists in a lab. So the, the, we, we are talking about fentanyl as if it's leaving Mexico, traveling across the border and searching for prey to attack. But it's just a response to a market. There are people wanting to purchase drugs on the black market, and it's the latest example or expression of what uh, economists call but the iron law of prohibition for short, which is the harder the enforcement, the harder the drug. Prohibition incentivizes uh, purveyors of whatever substance is prohibited to um, uh, come up with more potent forms of the drug so it could be smuggled in smaller sizes and subdivided into more units for sale if you're taking the risk. So, um, and, and during alcohol prohibition days, they weren't smuggling in beer and wine, they were smuggling in whiskey. Uh, when people are tailgating at a football game, there's an example, uh, a real-time example of the Iron Law Prohibition. They're drinking beer and wine out at the, in the parking lot, but they're not allowed to bring any alcohol into the stadium, and they're smuggling in the hard stuff in flasks. So when it comes to our current our war on drugs, in the early part of this century, the, most, the, the drug of choice for non-medical users was diverted prescription pain pills as efforts... Uh, took effect to, to clamp down on the amount of prescription pain pills available in the black market, uh, drug users moved next to heroin, which became readily available and provided to them. And then around the year 2012, um, the, those who were marketing heroin uh, figured out that if you add a little bit of fentanyl to the heroin, you increase its potency so you could actually smuggle it in even in smaller sizes and sell it in more units when you get it over the border. And then uh, gradually that became more and more of a component. In fact, early in the early days, heroin users were disappointed. They preferred the, the feeling that they got from, from heroin to the feeling they got from fentanyl. But in a black market, you take what you can get. And then um, during the, the pandemic, things really ramped up because um, borders were closed in order to, to, to process and market heroin. You have to first get the opium plant and you have to uh, use uh, acetic anhydride to, to process morphine, which is extracted from the opium poppy, into diacetylmorphine, which is heroin. There was actually also a supply chain shortage of acetic anhydride. So the, 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 the drug cartels figured quickly that they could just switch out uh, fentanyl for heroin. The ingredients for fentanyl were readily abundant. And now that those supply chain issues have resolved, it just makes good business sense to, st to stick what's working. But I'd like to warn policymakers that this is just the latest expression. Already we're seeing the addition of the veterinary tranquilizer xylazine to fentanyl to make it more potent. That's called trank by users. And I, I read a report recently that something like 40% of all fentanyl seized by law enforcement now has xylazine in it. And there's another uh, synthetic opioid making its making its uh, appearance called a category called nitazines, isotonitazine, or ISO as users call it. Uh, that started showing up in, in Europe and the US around 2019, and it's starting to, not every uh, lab is testing for it because it's not on their radar screen, but as recently as a year ago, the Tennessee Department of Health reported a four-fold increase in nitazine-related deaths uh, since 2019 in their state. So 
it, we, we can't just look at this as like fentanyl is coming over our border and attacking Americans. Um, Americans are purchasing drugs on the black market and fentanyl is the latest product that's been developed to, to satisfy the market. And so we were talking a bit before this about um, things that are somewhat less risky and somewhat more hopeful in terms of having an effect on diminishing the number of people who are dropping dead from overdoses. And you had mentioned that naloxone is now available over the counter, which is uh, something, you know, again, all of these things, none of these things are like, you know, something that you want to go out and have a parade about that now if someone overdoses, they could be brought back to life. Like ideally people wouldn't want to take drugs and overdose in the first place, but here we are. It's better the person's alive. Um, but what are some other things in terms of harm reduction, right? We have this stuff that's floating around. Um, in many cases, the uh, dosage, and I think, you know, we were talking also before about this, it's not clear how many people are dying because they don't know what they're getting. They think they're snorting cocaine, but in fact, they're snorting uh, an, an inordinate amount of fentanyl, and they're dropping dead because of that. Or they think they're snorting a certain potency of fentanyl, but they're snorting eight times the potency that they had, and they're dropping dead. So there's a certain amount of uncertainty that is causing these overdoses. But what are some things, just basic kind of like blocking and tackling public health things that policy could conceivably do that might have a better effect than AC-130 gunships over Mexico um, and not so much risk and cost? Yeah, there's some low-hanging fruit. And by the way, even if we ended drug prohibition, we would need harm reduction because harm reduction is... Uh, we see that in alcohol. We see that in, in, in health in general. It's, these are efforts taken to make, reduce the harmful effects of whatever uh, activity you're engaging in. So it would still make sense. But for example, uh, on the federal level, Congress could take steps to get federal legal obstacles out of the way of organizations that are trying to help their community. So one easy one is uh, we have drug paraphernalia laws both on a federal and state level. And while many states are taking steps to change that now, uh, up until recently, and still in many states, if you were to distribute test strips to people that you know tend to use drugs in the black market so they can test what they purchased to see if when they thought they bought an oxycodone pill it actually was fentanyl, you can get arrested because that's a because test strips are considered per forbidden drug paraphernalia. And um, so one thing that could easily be done both on a federal and state level is not just to legalize fentanyl test strips, but actually legalize equipment to test illicit drugs because now there's xylazine test strips out there. So some states have legalized fentanyl test strips. So now they have to call another session in the legislature to legalize xylazine, so just test strips. Another thing that could be done, um, since the early, the mid 1980s, now there are 147 government sanctioned uh, overdose prevention centers in 16, countries, including two in the United States that are operating uh, against federal law, but, but sanctioned by the city of New York, overdose prevention centers in, in 91 locations. These have been shown unequivocally to uh, prevent overdose deaths, to prevent the spread of, of, of bloodborne diseases and soft tissue infections. And as a bonus, they, there's a, they have a tendency to bring people into to treatment. A lot of people, the connection that, that forms from the unconditional concern for their well-being makes a lot of people with addiction actually seek help. Well, in the United States, we have 21 U.S.C. Section 856, colloquially called 
the crack house statute, which, would, which makes it federally illegal to knowingly allow someone on your premises who's using a controlled substance. So those two that are, there have been two that have been operating in New York through since November 30th of 2021. We just learned about a week ago that so far they've reversed 1,000 overdoses. That's a 1,000 people who are alive that likely would not be. They're technically uh, against the law and we're waiting to see the Justice Department already kind of said some ominous warnings just this week. There were reports about it. So. Congress could repeal that law ideally or at least modify it to allow overdose prevention centers that have been sanctioned by state, county, or municipal governments to operate. Um, also, in terms of treating people with substance use disorder, methadone has been a proven method of treatment since the 1960s. Uh, in the UK, Canada, and Australia, since the 1960s, people can access methadone through a primary care provider and, and fill it at their pharmacy. And clinicians are given a lot, of, a lot of flexibility to use their clinical judgment. But in this country, because of the Controlled Substance Act, people have to line up at a, a federally and state-approved clinic. And, and some states actually, like the, recently the state of West Virginia has a moratorium, so no more clinics. And there's zoning laws, et cetera, in order to get uh, methadone treatment. So we have an estimated 7 to 8 million people in this country with uh, opioid use disorder, mm -hmm. but only 400,000 people are able to access methadone. If we were able to increase <clears throat> access to methadone, we'd reduce the number of people going to the black market and risking their lives. And just to clarify real quickly, on test strips, what is the argument that those should be prohibited by the federal government? Um, or is there, do we know what the, the, the argument is? It's original crazy. Yeah, in the original paraphernalia laws, it was any, anything used to to test illicit drugs. So that's just in the language. Yeah. Uh, it's become actually relatively non-controversial. A lot of lawmakers on a state level are realizing, yeah. gee, we should make te fentanyl test strips available. Although I would argue, why don't you just make testing equipment All available? Yeah, because right. every that's the iron law prohibition right. tells us there are going to be new drugs coming down the pike and new testing equipment. So just make all testing equipment available, not just have to go back to the legislature every time. But I'm going to keep asking everybody questions, but I want for wherever people are watching, um, you can ask questions on the Cato website, on all of the various crazy social media outlets um, using the hashtag CatoFP. Um, I'm going to keep directing the discussion and asking questions of our terrific panel. Um, but I also wanted to commend to people there was an indictment in April uh, in the Southern District of New York of the Sinaloa cartel, um, which is... I'm trying to think of the right uh, adjective to use here. Very interesting reading um, for a variety of reasons, morbid and otherwise. But there was a very fascinating fact that, or it was re represented as fact by the federal government. Um, but it basically claimed that, um, at least in the case of the Sinaloa cartel, $800 worth of pr fentanyl precursor chemicals that the cartel procures in their allegation from China produces street value in the United States, and I don't know whether this is New York City or wherever, um, $640,000 of fentanyl, right? And I'm going to say it again because you fogged your brain up. Um, $800 of precursionals yields $640,000 of street value product. Now, if you say that they're shading those numbers by a factor of 10, $800 of precursor chemicals yielding $64,000 worth of street value product, is a heck of a hard incentive structure to bomb out of existence or to 
uh, you know, uh, 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 AUMF out of existence. And I just thought there were all sorts of different salacious cartel-y narcos details in there too, but I just thought that was an interesting uh, nugget that sort of reveals the nature of the problem. Brian, I wanted to ask you about, because w when we were discussing doing this event all together, I think all of us were a little reticent <laughs> about doing an event on this at all because we thought, well, these are some wild and crazy ideas and maybe we might not want to shine a light on them at all, but um, it's quite clear that given the public appetite for and frustration, I think, with what's going on with fentanyl and the general zeitgeist of the country, um, the frustration with what I think is futility of the war on drugs, um, that this is going to be kicking around for a while. And we've talked a little bit about how frequently it's come up um, in the GOP primary. You talked a little bit about the extent to which um, these bills on the Hill are sort of you know, in a blind alley, at least for now. Um, President Trump, obviously, um, had some unique, uh, very Trumpily unique ideas about um, dealing with these problems, namely to um, lob some cruise missiles um, over the border, which he announced um, to the Pentagon officials. Um, the Mexicans would never be able to know who did it, which is a unique take. Um, and, you know, the Pentagon did what the Pentagon did with President Trump. They slow walked it and said, uh-huh, yes, sir. And he forgot about that idea and moved on, and the Pentagon breathed a sigh of relief and moved on to something else. Um, but you could conceive, clearly, of a somewhat more focused uh, commander-in-chief with somewhat uh, more practical applications of this idea. What do you, you know, get your crystal ball out here, two, three, four, or five years down the road? Um, is Plan Mexico uh, a conceivable scenario? What do you, I mean, I think the AUMF, I hope, is a sort of, you know, stretching the bounds of what is politically saleable to talk about. What, what do you worry about in practical terms uh, coming to fruition? So I think, unfortunately, it's all too conceivable. And so when those revelations um, came out in Mark Esper's memoir about um, former President Trump musing about um, bombing uh, with missile strikes, Mexican drug labs, and then denying that the U.S. had anything to do with it. Um, it was widely derided and regarded with um, you know, some degree of um, amusement and you know, as, as being absurd. Um, but I think what we've seen happen since is that this notion that was once off the wall and regarded as deeply abnormal has become on the wall and all too normal. It's got, as you referred to, it's gained a lot of traction of the idea of using military force against drug trafficking organizations in Mexico or using military force to counter um, the movement of fentanyl into the United States has gained a lot of traction, particularly amongst the um, candidates for the Republican nomination for president. And so, uh, you know, while it may have been true in the Trump administration that the Pentagon does what the Pentagon does and slows walks ideas it doesn't, doesn't like, I think that the more this idea is out there in Congress, in the public debate, um, <clears throat> being endorsed by politicians, um, the more likely it is to habituate the bureaucracy, and the, and the less likely the bureaucracy is to push back on this. And I think we've, I've seen the parallels in the last, you know, 10 years of other uses of force, um, unilateral use of force by um, uh, the president. And so, for example, um, when President Obama declared that use of chemical weapons would be a red line in Syria, 
That began the process of habituating the, the national security bureaucracy to thinking about military options to responding to the use of chemical weapons. Now, ultimately, President Obama did not use military force against Syria in response to chemical weapon use. He went to Congress in 2013 after the use of sarin against civilians by Assad, didn't get a congressional authorization to use force, and then did not use force. Um, but the, the process was underway where this was regarded as a, a potentially acceptable um, policy response. And so when President Trump came into office and um, respond, wanted to respond with use of force um, to further chemical weapon usage, there wasn't that sort of pushback, there wasn't that sort of slow walking from the, the bureaucracy, from, from the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think we saw something similar with um, the drone strike on Qasem Soleimani, the, um, um, the Iranian general, where you know, the Trump administration had designated the IRGC as a foreign terrorist organization. That's not a use of force authorization, but nonetheless, by framing the IRGC as terrorists, well, people, the bureaucracy starts thinking about, what are the tools we use against terrorists? Well, the last 20 years, we've been using drone strikes on terrorists. We've been drone striking ISIS terrorists, we've been drone striking Al-Qaeda terrorists, Al-Shabaab terrorists, et cetera. Well, why don't we just use that same tool against this, te this terrorist, Qasem Soleimani? Yeah. And so those are the sort of risks that I see. F sort of the framing sets you up such that, you know, the, the, the wheels are greased to make an instantaneous decision. It, you know, amongst, amongst policymakers, amongst the bureaucracy, it's, it's less tenable for the bureaucracy to push back or, or to slow walk um, these what should be uh, absurd proposals. Yeah. Guadalupe, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Mexico in particular, right? Um, so. I empathize with the Mexican government, right? Um, because the Mexican government um, is, is, you know, constantly being wrapped about um, doing more. You know, we wish that it would uh, uh, take our help, take our uh, 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 weapons and our bombs, and a whole variety of other things. Um, and yet, they are kind of, uh, you know, I'm not going to quote Porfirio Diaz again, but you know, they, they're sort of stuck. Uh, they're sort of stuck. Right, um, they kind of have. Um, they can't. I think it's it's fair to say do go the full Crenshaw if we want to call it that. Um, but presumably there are some things that could be done differently that would be helpful. Um, or maybe you don't think there are some things that could be done differently that that would be helpful. What if you were sort of giving advice would be some things that you think would be constructive in this respect um, that that wouldn't be potentially catastrophic. Yes, and this is a great question because we criticize policies and we don't we, we don't acknowledge also the ones that are on the table but uh, that have not gone further. What I'm saying is during the years of more collaboration between the US government and the Mexican government during the Merida Initiative times, by the end of 2006 when former president of Mexico, Felipe Calderón Hinojosa, declared a war on drugs, also with the very, I mean, very close collaboration of the U.S. government. And things didn't work well. I mean, and you have now a fentanyl crisis, the opioid epidemic, the fentanyl crisis, during those years, since 2006, close collaboration. The next administration um, of Enrique Peña Nieto, the relationship was so strong. During those years, the, the strong men of the war on drugs, I would say, to 2006, 2012, 
um, the Secretary of Public Safety, Genaro Garcia Luna, was connected with one of the cartels. Right. And the, in, the, in the next administration, Salvador Cienfuegos, who's the head of the Ministry of Defense, Secretariat of Defense of Mexico, was arrested um, in 2020 in the United States. Well, corruption impunity has always been utilized uh, by the U.S. government to say they cannot deal with their own stuff. And former President Donald Trump said that he understands that Mexicans cannot deal with their own issues, so he would bring his own men to fight the bad hombres of, the, of, of Mexico. Well, it's interesting also to acknowledge that the Merida Initiative experience was, was not as, as good as we would wanted to have, and the current president criticized the previous two administrations for this close collaboration. And he has been talking about um, you know, reframing that collaboration, having less presence of, uh, less U.S. presence, and diminishing and controlling more the, the role of the DEA and Mexican soil because of a number of issues that have happened because of mistakes or, or maybe other uh, problems with the involvement of the DEA on Mexico's soil. But, um, I mean, recently, the Mexican government and the U.S. government work on a reformish Verida initiative under the Bicentennial Framework. If you read what the Bicentennial Framework is about, a focus on combating this problem from the, uh, with the, uh, through the root causes, I mean addressing the root causes, addressing the root causes of violence in Mexico and drug consumption in the United States, focusing on solving these issues um, in a different way, I mean combining a number of strategies, right? Of course, uh, collaborating to address the criminal networks with the law enforcement part, but also dealing with the, with the, uh, I mean, with the, the problem of drug consumption in the United States, focusing resources on, 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 I mean, to treat this issue as a public health crisis. It has all been acknowledged in, in that the, in the bicentennial framework. The problem with that framework is that uh, there are no budgets. Uh, to, to, to further these excellent proposals. A money laundering, arms trafficking, all that is considered. But um, also internally in the United States to deal with the issue of arms. Um, the the arms trade in the United States is be, I mean, has, has different logics, like the logics that the Mexican government would have. And the Mexican government does not address the issue of their, of their customs. So you know, arms enter freely. And so the Mexican authorities are always putting the blame on the United States, the same as the United States put the blame on, 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 on the cartels or what they call the cartels to explain the, 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 the drug trafficking issue. But if you read very closely this, uh, I mean, this document that incorporates these high-level meetings between the two governments, I think we can go somewhere. But... But the budgets and the specific actions have not reached the level through where we have to be at, addressing poverty, inequality, you know, to, uh, I mean, you know, to address issues also and to further uh, citizen security initiatives. All that is, uh, all that is, is, is there, but. And just to get a sense, and this is a number that no one has because it's hard to, you know, we've been talking about, or I've been talking about, you know, fentanyl and 70,000 people a year, you know. <laughs> 
the, the, the drug war in Mexico itself has not been exactly a walk in the park. And, you know, we don't have great numbers for drug war deaths in Mexico because we're picking through homicides and trying to say right. these are accountable to the drug war and right. these are not. But we're way into the, I mean, north of 100,000 over the past couple of decades that are pretty clearly attributable to Freedom. drug war violence. I mean, more or less. Into the tens a of thousands? A little bit more than that. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> so this is, you know, it's not to say we don't want to be too U.S.-centric here, that this has been, you know, kind of a nightmare in a country with a third the population of the U.S. population where there's been tremendous amounts of violence and tremendous amounts of death and carnage um, that have taken place. And, you know, as you pointed out, there's a supply problem and there's a demand problem, you know. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's when you have supply. I mean, when you have demand, there's going to be supply um, from somewhere, and that's uh, two sides of the same coin. I keep looking for, like, a really hostile question here that I could give I to Jeff or something. Please, <laughs> Jeff, jump in, please. I, I'm, I'm just a doctor, so I don't know anything about <laughs> defense policy or anything like that. So I'm just trying to wrap my head around how we would do this because when we were trying to eradicate the cocaine trade from Colombia, we were burning co coca fields, and when we were trying to get rid of the marijuana trade, um, we were dropping paraquat on areas where we thought they were growing the cannabis plant. But fentanyl, like meth, is made in labs. I mean, you can make it in your basement. Um, so are, are we anticipating, like, urban warfare with door-to-door -door combat, like in Fallujah? I, I just want to know, could somebody explain to me how we would do this? There's a reason that nobody's explaining it to you. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, again, if you read this indictment of, of you know, the, the Sinaloa cartel in the Southern District, um, you know, you're talking about, you know, in some cases, you know, the precursor chemicals themselves are not even coming in 55-gallon drums, they're coming in 33s, or, you know, I mean, this is, you know, and this is in a country of north of 100 million people, you know, you talk about China, 1.3 billion people. I mean, this is just, it's a problem of scale. It's the proverbial needle in the haystack, and then again, you know, the... Uh, the, you know, you're better able to speak to the chemical, you know, laboratory conditions. But yeah, it's not. And, you know, and again, we eradicated a hell of a lot of coca and a hell of a lot of marijuana during the heydays of the drug war. And I showed you what happened to the prices. So it's a big world out there. Um, you know, and the idea that you're going to be able to chase this stuff down at a scale at the same time in a way that you're going to put a dent where the profit incentives are at the scale that they are just strikes me as being, and I, I was doing a podcast on this, and I said, look, I hate being the chat GPT libertarian drug war critique <laughs> as much as anybody does, um, but I'm sorry, you know, it just, it's just true. So, um, you know, I think that needs to be said that, you know, you're just, you're, you're not going to win this thing. Brian Gluther, you want to jump in? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the proposals, such as they are, are vague and uh, light on specifics, but, you know, you hear uh, calls on the campaign trail for missile strikes, uh, naval blockade of Mexico, um, shooting uh, suspected, uh, shooting migrants at the border if they're suspected of carrying fentanyl. I'm not joking, I just saw that one today. Um, summary executions by Border Patrol. Um, so they're both vague, um, but also over the top. And I also note that, you know, the U.S., you know, two years ago pulled out of Afghanistan. For 20 years, we spent um, trying to fight drugs there by bombing drug labs, burning drugs, um, without much success. Yeah. And that was with, you know, tens of thousands of troops on the ground. <laughs> It's a big country, though, you know, so um, uh -huh. I, I do think that there is, you know, and it bears mentioning here and, and, and not to pile on, but some of this stuff has really gotten um, into uh, 
inhumanity um, that I, is a word that I don't use lightly. Um, and we've heard things along the lines of, you know, there was a presidential candidate who was talking about these proposals for um, shooting suspected cartel members in the United States who had come across the border. And the question, which seemed fair to me, was raised, well, how will you know that they're members of the cartel? They, you know, they don't wear uniforms or what have you. Um, and, and the presidential candidate responded by saying, well, it was the same way we would do it in Iraq. You know, you couldn't tell one person from the other. So, and I thought, well, wait a minute. Number one, was that what we were doing in Iraq? And number two, um, this is the United States. It's not, you know, um, it's not Iraq. Um, and so I think that this, this has, like, you know, to Brian's point, loosed the rhetorical bounds that I think should be constraining the way we talk about what are even, let's grant, real problems with real bad guys behind, you know. <laughs> I'm willing to grant all of the, the, the you know, precursor arguments, if we want to, um, th that will get us to this, but I, I, I really think that some of the rhetoric um, in some of these cases has gotten scary um, and uh, uh, inhumane um, and I think that that is worth uh, 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 calling out. Um, as I mentioned, I was looking for something like really, really hostile uh, to direct at Jeff or somebody else here, but I, I, people seem really reasonable um, on the internet for once on a Friday. Um, let's see what I have here. Um, my goodness. So there's a question, let's see. Gabriel Cavanas says, talks about um, Mexico is a major trade and business partner of the United States. It's just recently uh, displaced China yeah. from the role as uh, leading trade partner of the United States, um, only growing more important as the U.S. seeks to decouple from China. Um, how would this unilateral military action toward Mexico threaten trade, um, especially given the sunset clause and USMCA for negotiations in 26. Um, I would just also add, and as I was kind of like thinking through this before um, we did this, right, the, the, the core unifying principle these days in American foreign policy is supposed to be China. Um, you know, kind of comes and goes by the wayside, I guess. Um, but, you know, the one thing that would really, really set people's hair on fire is... <laughs> the Mexican government playing nice with the Chinese. But boy, oh boy, if we started blowing stuff up in Mexico, you, the Mexicans could certainly be forgiven for <laughs> you know, having a state visit uh, from Xi Jinping or something along this nature. So um, uh, Guadalupe, what do you think about, um, you know, obviously this trade and investment question is a big important one, both for Mexico and for the United States. Um, but maybe I think it gets to this question of the broader bilateral relationship maybe. Um, what's your, your I'm sort of asking a question I've already asked, but I'll ask it again. Absolutely. It's not just trade. I mean, declaring a war on the cartels, it's similar to declare a war on Mexico. I mean, I, I try to explain the configuration of organized crime in Mexico. These organizations not are not necessarily related to national security priorities of the United States. I mean fentanyl, I mean drugs. These organizations operate in a very different way. We're talking about networks of people that transport drugs, uh, corrupt officials, uh, lookouts, and members of community. It's a network. It's not a cartel per se. How you're going to, I mean, to identify a cartel then? 
you're going to cause a lot of destruction. How many refugees are going to try to get into the United States? What's going to be the, the relationship of the United States with Russia, with China? Uh, Russia had already, has already mentioned something about this. And, and, and they have, um, I mean, tried to, uh, to, to say that they also can protect Mexico and Mexicans. And, and, and this is going to happen with China, too. Yep. So this is going to backfire. Yep. Yeah. This is a, I think, uh, trick libertarian question for Jeff Singer. Since harm reduction tools are so effective, should they be federally funded? Question mark? <laughs> um, no, they don't have to be. That's an easy one. They don't have to be right. federally funded. Uh, and in fact, I think it's important to the, the, the emphasis on the policy should be to remove obstacles yeah. to groups that want to engage in harm reduction. Um, and, and recently, uh, the, in legislators in the state of Rhode Island uh, passed a law that was signed by the governor, which allowed over those prevention centers, providing they're privately funded, and that they coordinate with the county health departments uh, to be set up. And there are two private harm reduction organizations that are about to, to open the first one in Rhode Island, again, in defiance of the federal law. Um, so it's, it, it, there, there are plenty of organizations that have, have no problem raising funds. The problem they have is that there, there is law enforcement and law in their way. I think there's a lot in here, too, for Jeff about the intermingling. This is from Anonymous about, and this is, again, talking about, um, you know, you, you've pointed and hammered away at prohibition, but this person, anonymously, is talking about mental health crisis. Like, there's something weird and witchy going on in the United States right now that is bound up with fentanyl prohibition and also something else. Um, are there policies being presented for consideration to mitigate the ongoing mental health well, crisis? You know, I'm, that, I'm glad that person asked that question because okay. that's an important point. Um, and we're not hearing enough about this, but in, in, in early, in mid-2018, researchers at the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health uh, using CDC data showed that the uh, overdose crisis, is that overdose rate has been growing exponentially since at least the late 1970s when it, that's the most recent year they were able to get data. And the only thing that's changed over the decades is which particular drugs are predominating or in vogue at any given time. And they said that they don't even see any evidence that this growth trend is slowing down so that we can expect it's going to continue to go up. And um, for example, uh, Ted Cicero and, and, and colleagues at Washington University in St. Louis, mm -hmm. it's a very well-known addiction researcher, he uh, found, in, he published in 2017, that uh, heroin addicts who were ad admitted to rehab uh, in 2015, 33% said that they initiated non-medical drug use with heroin. In other words, heroin was their gateway drug. Now, in my generation, you thought you were really living on the edge smoking pot, yeah. and heroin wasn't even on the list. They called them reefers back then, Jeff. <laughs> well, no, it was a little later than that. <laughs> but, but 10 years earlier, that same survey found 9% initiated with heroin. Wow. So I think there's, uh, for, for reasons that are obviously beyond my area of expertise and probably, probably multifactorial, we're seeing a, a growing number of people who are willing to engage in drug use, either they're self-medicating because they're 
they're, they're having mental anguish or they're just recreationally engaging or maybe a combination of both. And they're willing to take risks these days that earlier generations weren't willing to take. So you take that and you have that intersect with the dangers that always result when you have prohibition yeah. and you create this dangerous black market and it's like a, you know, a perfect storm. There's a question here I wanted to ask Guadalupe from Joe Lawn or Lawton. Um, this was, so it reads, I'll see if I can make sense of it. Additionally, what role does our military intervention in Colombia play in creating these conditions in Mexico? If the U.S. did manage to reduce supply via military intervention, where would narcotics supply lines shift to? So I think the question talks a little bit about, so, you know, in the 90s, right, we rolled up the Medellin cartel, we rolled up the Cali cartel, and somehow cocaine kept coming into the mm -hmm. United States. It's a darn mystery. Um, but, you know, coca was being grown in places like Peru and places like Bolivia, and they figured out, oh, we can make money by selling this to the Americans. Great, we'll sell it to the Americans. You know, I mean, it's not hard to figure out. But in, it, right around that same time, a lot of the processing moved to Mexico. You know, I mean, there was, there was so you, you, it's the proverbial, you know, we did this during Iraq and Afghanistan, the push down pop up, right? You push down one place over here, and it pops exactly. up over here. Um, so to what extent is that sort of push down pop up phenomenon, do you buy my story about Colombia, number one, and number two, if we push down in one part of Mexico, is it going to pop up somewhere else? Yes, maybe in the United States we're talking about, uh, I mean, yes, we are, we're talking about, uh, I mean, synthetic drugs yeah. that can be produced everywhere, right? We just need the, the precursors, but precursors can also be produced somewhere else, not that they don't necessarily need to come from China. I mean, and... I mean, this country is so wide. I mean, you can have labs, or you have labs in the United States. Well, we don't have information about that. The costs of producing fentanyl in the United States will be much lower. So if you cannot produce them in Mexico, if you cannot produce them in South America, you can produce them, I mean, in the United States because the demand is so important. So, I mean, it's just one idea, right? I mean. People in this country cannot think of that happening because this is a country with laws. I mean, the rule of law is strong, but it's not that strong anymore either. I mean, not because, I mean, this, this country is suffering some, some issues also institutionally. Brian, let me ask you this one that I think came in via Twitter. Um, and it is kind of paradoxical, and I'll set it up in a different way uh, after I read it. So Robert Clark via Twitter asked, given that many GOP presidential candidates now seem skeptical of past AUMFs, and I think there's a broader AUMF buyer's remorse happening now in this town writ large, and more inclined toward restraint. Why do you think that on this issue of the cartels that they're more aggressive? Is it purely to score political points? And just as one anecdote, there was a discussion to which you were probably privy um, in some of these efforts to repeal the 2001 AUMF, that one deal that was proposed was, all right, all right, we will get rid of the 2001 AUMF that inaugurated the global war on terrorism, but we will replace it with a Mexico AUMF. And you thought to yourself, oh, geez, is this progress? Um, but what do you make of this? There is like a sense that, hey, maybe we went a little bananas after 9-11 there for a while. Uh, but how about in a Mexico invasion? So I think where folks have landed is, yes, there's this fatigue of big wars, you know, tens of thousands of troops deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, 
But it seems to be that you know, most Americans are, for, for better or worse, sort of inured to what we call GWAT light, which is a small footprint, you know, occasional drone strike. And so you know, to the extent that any of these proposals are serious, you know, what they're contemplating is like what Trump mused uh, about, which is you know, a few missile strikes, performative and symbolic missile strikes against you know, drug labs in Mexico. And you could say, we're being tough on drugs. We're, we're take, putting the war back in the war on drugs. As we've discussed, there are some real downsides, even if these would be um, you know, pinprick strikes. They would, you know, um, many downsides to um, attacking cartels and damaging our relationship with, with Mexico. Um, so I think it does reflect um, sort of where the, the sort of you know, conversation is on use of force. I don't think many of these proposals are serious. That said, talking about them in this way um, does normalize them and, and make it more likely that you know, a future president may actually act on them. Yeah, I want to read, you know, again, a quote here from the, the chairman that the House now has a, uh, a task force on countering the cartels, and its chair um, talked a little bit about some examples of what um, an AUMF would do. Um, so what we want, according to this individual, who I've already talked about ad nauseum, so I won't name again, um, is to get Mexico to ask for military support, quote, such as close air support, such as an AC-130 gunship overhead while they're prosecuting a target and surrounded by sicarios, which is exactly what happened earlier this year. Um, as Navy SEALs would just call in close air support and all those guys would be gone and we'd move along our merry way. Um, so this is really, again, getting back to this idea of Mexico is in a civil war or an insurgency or something but golly gee, they just don't understand it, or they just won't fight hard enough. Um, and I think that you know, you've heard over and over, as I mentioned before, this idea of insurgency, counterinsurgency, stability operations. Um, and I remember during the battle days of Iraq and Afghanistan, which you know, Cato notoriously was opposed to at the outset, um, thinking, well, at least it's 7,000 miles away. You know, it's like a right. terrible thing for us to be doing, um, but, but at least it's really, really far away. But the idea that you would import an insurgency or a counterinsurgency campaign and stick it on your border in your largest trading partner seems to me just the height of imprudence, to put it politely, in language that I could use around my kids. Um, <laughs> so I, th there is this just idea of, like, to me, it's just living in an alternate reality. And it's not to make light of the fact that there have been shootouts at, at military scale using military equipment, 50 caliber machine guns, et cetera. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying that these guys are out there in their backyards with slingshots. I mean, these are, you know, real bad dudes with real heavy weapons. Um, but it's escalating, you know, a conflict that is right now at a pretty low level to full-on shooting war, um, which is you know, uh, uh, dubious judgment. Let me find another one here from uh, uh, the online audience. Um, let's see. Let's go, to the, let's go to you people here. So I'm, I'm like juggling three different things, and I'm forgetting about the actual living, breathing human beings in the audience here. How bad of a moderator am I? There's uh, right down here in the front in the white shirt. Sorry, everybody. Hi, uh, my name is Veronica. I'm with the National Coalition for Drug Legalization. I think the much larger question that no one's really asked is, 
What are your thoughts on the legalization of all drugs? And do you see this as a way to reduce drug market violence and drug overdoses? And what would it take to get people to start thinking about legalization of all drugs? Jeff Singer? Well, I think, of course, that's the only way we're going to see a reduction in the violence and the deaths. Um, we learned this with alcohol, but it seems like we have very short memories. Yeah. So I always tell people when I go to my drug dealer, which is the neighborhood liquor store, um, and I look on the shelf uh, at bourbon, which is my drug of choice, and it says 45% alcohol, it never even crosses my mind that they may be lying to me, it may be 60% alcohol, I might have fentanyl in it. That's because it's legal and regulated. And I, I think the, the, the solution is to, to legalize all drugs in the same way. But unfortunately, it seems that you're asking about the prospects. Rather than even entertain something like a halfway step, like decriminalization, which is happening in Europe increasingly, you know, not just Portugal, Czech Republic, Germany, Switzerland, they're not, they're not arresting people for possessing uh, any of these drugs for uh, personal use. They're not even making uh, interest in these halfway measures. You're hearing people talk about escalating the war on drugs. So I don't, I don't really have a lot of optimism about our prospects. Let's go to another person right there, uh, checkered shirt. Uh, another question for Dr. Singer. What role does uh, like drug scheduling under the Controlled Substances Act play in all this? And we're talking about synthetic drugs and uh, you know amateur chemists trying to stay. A, seems like they're trying to stay ahead of the law with you know you know uh, bureaucrats scheduling new sort of synthetic uh, models for these drugs. What role, if anything, uh, does that play in the in the crisis? Well, if anything, uh, placing the, the, the DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration, does the scheduling. And by scheduling a drug as Schedule 1, that means it has no accepted medical use and a high uh, tendency for abuse. And among drugs that uh, have been placed on Schedule 1, first of all, you're depriving, basically, you're depriving research and the opportunity to do clinical research on drugs that could potentially be very helpful, such as psychedelics, even even a lot of the drug war hawks are suddenly realizing the benefits that psychedelics may have, the treatment of PTSD, particularly in veterans, and other uh, problems. Well, we basically stunted re clinical research on psychedelics for over 50 years because they were placed on Schedule 1. Cannabis, uh, I don't think anybody could with a straight face say there's no accepted medical use of cannabis. So that, that's one of the downsides. The other downside is you're basically uh, helping to create a market that the uh, cartels and other people wanting to get into the drug market can get into because if you make it Schedule 1, it's no longer available uh, through the legal market. So heroin in this country was made Schedule 1. Well, they didn't have schedules then, but it was banned in the United States. It's diacetylmorphine or diamorphine, which is the generic name. Bayer, who invented it, gave the name heroin. That was banned in the United States in 1924, and within 10 years, that became the, the number one opioid that people were using in the black market because, obviously, it became attractive for people in the black market to sell. It's on the formulary in much of the developed world. In fact, in some countries like Canada, Germany, um, the Netherlands, um, Switzerland as well, people are oftentimes given heroin 
when methadone's not working for them as a form of medication-assisted treatment. Well, Lupe, a question came in that I'm going to manipulate a little bit and then throw to you, but um, it was about the cartels themselves. Obviously, you wrote a book about Los Etas. Um, and reading about in, in sort of preparing for this, you know, some of these folks are really, really bad people. Uh, let's just say that uh, <laughs> up front. So one of the things that I, when I was reading to, to, to set this up, you know, they have, in many cases, sophisticated testing equipment that they're able to figure out what they're producing. Um, but because they're really bad people, sometimes they'll get an addict and just shoot the addict up with mm -hmm. the drugs to see what that batch looks like. And in one particular instance, uh, you know, the guy died, and then they just sent that stuff across the border anyway, and you think to yourself, like, who mm -hmm. would do that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, again, to stipulate, not nice guys, um, but what would the cartel do? Right, like I mean, I think, or the cartels, the cartel, like it's one monolithic thing. But what do you think? What What's your best guess at the responses of this thing? Because as you, you know, on paper, um, you know, the United States military or the you know U.S. Marine Corps against Shia militias, boy, the United States Marine Corps will mop the floor with some Shia militias. But that's not the way it works. Um, and what is your best read of? How the, the, how the cartels would respond to a greater U.S. military role um, shoulder to shoulder with the Mexican military or not? I mean, the political aspect is hanging right there, obviously, but what do you, what's your best guess at how the cartels would respond? It, it, this is a great question because... The, in the public sphere, the discussion, it's not based on reality and facts. It's not bad and good actors. When the Mexican government in, 26, in 2006, uh, when the Mexican president declared a war on drugs, there was kind of like a discourse, a narrative about the bad people and the good people. The bad ones are the cartel members, and the good ones were the military, the federal police, but we understood that in context of war, we're talking about war, we're talking about counterinsurgency tactics too, where we really don't know. And also, I mean, we're talking about paramilitary groups also getting into here. This is what happened in Colombia. Because not all the time, US soldiers, on, in the case of 2006 to till today, we're talking about um, military dress in civilian suits in order not to affect the perception of the military. And this is going to be very complex. So we're not talking about bad people and good people. The disappearances in Mexico, for example. Mm -hmm. Who are the perpetrators of these disappearances? And who are the victims? Who are the disappeared people? Some of them were cartel members. Some of them were collateral victims. And some, some of the ones who disappeared, these people, were the bad cartels. But also the Mexican military mm -hmm. uh, collaborated with US agencies. What is going to happen in a context of war? You're declaring a war on the Mexican people. Mm -hmm. And so this is going to be much more complex. The cartels are not the bad only, you know. It's like as if you have a monolithic bad actor yep. that is dedicated to traffic drugs, and that's not the case, mm -hmm. it, it, understanding the configuration of organized crime mm -hmm. in the country. Mm -hmm. 
So it's not as, as it is presented in the Netflix series that we have a Chapo Guzman, mm -hmm. or we have a Mayo Zambada, or we have a Marro, or we have a, I mean, all these names of, of bad men uh, leading bad men with, with capacity to, to fight against the military of Mexico or the United States. And now we have a third component here. The Mexican government is not going to allow U.S. military force into Mexico. So what is going to happen? Are we going to have two, uh, I mean, the militarization in Mexico has reached today levels that we had never imagined. They manage, of course, they, I mean, that there's a, mon a, 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 a monopoly, right, of the, of the public safety at the federal level. They, uh, I mean, control the, the ports, customs, uh, a, a migration, um, uh, I mean, the, the routes, they are participating in the construction of the mega projects of the Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. They are participating, they're going to be dealing with, with an airline that is being created. They are participating everywhere. I don't know if that gives you like an idea of what the Mexican government is also thinking about. We can really create a war against two countries. I know I don't want to be, I mean, I, I don't want to be pessimistic, but is the Mexican government going to support the the U.S. military? I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, it's fanciful. Right. Let's see if we have any other questions. Oh, there's somebody all the way in the back there. Sorry if you've had your hand up. Thanks much for the forum. Uh, just. I have so many questions, but I'll just boil it down to one. Uh, to the senora, thank you very much uh, for your book, Los Etas Incorporated. It was awesome reading. Um, is the government essentially a transnational uh, criminal organization? Thanks. Sorry? Can you repeat Mexico that? essentially a, a transnational criminal organization, or could it, could it arguably be perceived that way? The Mexican government? Yes. Uh, transnational criminal organization? Okay. Um, you know, if you if you're, uh, I mean, if you're characterizing the Mexican government, all of that, I'm 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 glad you didn't mention the concept state, the Mexican state as a transnational criminal organization. What do you? I mean, wh probably when you characterize the Mexican government, you're thinking of the cases of Genaro Garcia Luna or Salvador Cienfuegos, because we're talking about the Secretary of uh, of Defense or or the head of the Secretary of Public Safety that was the main organization that was formed uh, during that six-year six period, the administration of Felipe Calderón Hinojosa. But if you're talking about the Mexican government all uh, connected with the cartels as some political figures are, are, are considering, or it's exactly what is driving today the narrative uh, among certain political groups in the United States, I'm talking about uh, a, a very important section of the Republican Party. It's like everything in Mexico, the, all the government is connected with the Chapo Guzman or the Sinaloa cartel. Well, Chapo is not, I mean, it's, it's in prison. But you're kind of like uh, assuming that the whole government, including the president of Mexico and the military, is directly connected, collaborated, and also participating in the drug trade, and, the, and, and that you are, you know, that they are all in combination, uh, combining themselves to 
I mean, to, to bring the drugs to the United States. I think it's a massive exaggeration on the way to put it. It's, it's very risky, and it's going to put the whole country of Mexico against the military of the United States, the, the government of the United States. It's going to be a war against two countries because there is a war on drugs. And if, and if you characterize the Mexican government as a transnational criminal organization, so then let's declare a war in Mexico. And this is very dangerous. I don't know if that was a Charles Tilley question. It was hearkening back to <laughs> <laughs> yes. war making, state making, is organized crime. Um, I think, unless there's another hand that I see here, which I don't, um, I think we've exhausted most of what I saw that wasn't um, stepping on other questions um, here. And yeah, I think we've covered most of what we needed to cover today. Um, and I don't want to stand between all of you and uh, perfectly legal beer and wine um, that will be available uh, for us upstairs. So again, I think um, this is you know, a very important, um, very, I was going to say sobering, very grim um, topic that I think is going to be persistent in our policy debates um, in the months and conceivably years to come. Um, it's very important. I think Cato, with its uh, uh, unique perspective, is going to have a role to play. Um, and I'm very thankful that we covered what I think is a, a, a tremendous amount of the different aspects um, of this issue here this afternoon. So it is 4.20 on a Friday afternoon. We'll have some beer and wine upstairs to the people on C-SPAN, to the people on the Cato website. Thank you very much. And please join me in thanking uh, the panelists here today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it.